Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Good morning. Good morning, VJ. How are you today? Good. Doing well. Thanks. And Good. our featured guest today is John W. Lays. He is an indie poet who has been writing poetry since he was 14 years old, inspired by the words of John Lennon and Bob Dylan. His major poetic influences include Allen Ginsberg, Walt Whitman, Lord Byron, Erica Jong, uh, Arthur Rimbald, uh, Sylvia Plath, uh, etc., uh, including um, many others. Uh, John was born in Long Island, New York, and raised in Albany, Oregon. He served five years in the U.S. Army as a personnel clerk, received a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Religious Studies from the University of South Florida in Tampa, and studied for his Master's degree in Judaic Studies in the Graduate School of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. He currently lives in um, Oregon with his wife Justin, Justine and her son Tristan and three dogs and two cats. All right, welcome John. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So why don't we start off a little bit about your book, um, The Darkness of His Dreams, which is the poetry book. I believe it's your first uh, debut collection. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how this book started and, and the evolution of it and the creative process behind it. Well, it kind of started like you, you read in the bio. I've been writing poetry for most of my life and always kind of with the eye towards I wanted to publish something at some point. Like I wanted to have that out there in the public. It wasn't for me just a personal thing. Um, and for one reason or other, that was always very intimidating. And I just never felt like I was at a point where I had like anything approaching a book together. And then for a while, I would say for maybe close to 10 years, I wasn't writing very much. Like I was still writing, but just occasionally not writing more than I was writing. And then about three or four years ago, I had been, well, I've been reading some Allen Ginsberg and just randomly as thoughts come into your head, I had an image in my head. There's a um, Bob Dylan film. Don't look back in the opening sequence. It's a, like a proto music video, which a lot of people might know of him dropping the cards as he's um, singing sub subterranean homesick blues. And Allen Ginsberg is in the background, just hanging out while they're shooting. And that kind of, that image in my head just set something off and I started writing and I ended up, ended up writing a poem that was about 10 pages long about Allen Ginsberg. And the, that process well, it was, it, it was just, for me, very different. I hadn't felt it in a while where I just had to write this down. It just kept coming. And I think, okay, well, that's the end. Oh, no, there's there's more in there. And it just kept going. And I really started writing after that, like it opened a floodgate. And I felt like I needed somewhere to go with it. So I um, started a blog thinking, well, this way I can get my stuff out there and get some feedback on it. Cause I didn't feel like I had anywhere to get like good feedback from or see if what I'm, what I'm doing is okay. And actually ended up encountering a really good um, writing community and especially poetry community on, on WordPress. Mm. And it ran into a lot of people that were self-publishing, which is a lot easier than it used to be. And basically the stuff that I've been um, posting on the, the blog, I kind of went through what had people reacted to, what had people responded well to, what did I like? 
picked off, you know, my favorites and kind of narrowed it down to a book length and edited through it and went ahead and published it. But pretty much everything in there is stuff that I kind of test drove on the blog first. Yeah, 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 that's great. And tell us a little bit about some of the influences that um, tell us a little bit more about some of the influences that uh, both poetic and and uh, you mentioned the religious that uh, guided the book. Um, for me, it's so hard to detangle all of that because I feel like it's all really part of my life that. For, and it's interesting because I feel like when I was younger, like high school and before, I never really considered myself either a religious or spiritual person at all. And it was actually when I was a teenager through my mom, I got interested in, in the Beatles, which for one thing, as you mentioned in my bio, John Lennon's lyrics and later Dylan's lyrics kind of got got me into writing but George Harrison got me into looking into a lot of spiritual matters just because I hadn't thought about them until I heard some of the things he was singing and some of the things he was saying in interviews. It was like, oh, I, and kind of like, I don't know that I agree with what he's saying, but the things he's talking about, it's like, I hadn't thought about that before. And that's kind of been since then a bit of a driving force in my life. It's just part of who I am, I feel like, <clears throat> and an ongoing process. And because a lot of the poetry I write, not all of it, but I, I tend to write on a variety of subjects. Some of it's about just what I'm seeing in the world or how I'm looking at the world and things I'm thinking about. And some we, of those things are... Yeah. Could we go back to John Lennon and tell me more about what uh, drew you to, what specifically was he talking about to kind of set you going on an exploration of your own? Well, like with John Lennon, I think it was because my first exposure to the Beatles was the movie Help. And I think it was just the song itself, Help, to begin with, was one of the first pieces of writing that I encountered, pieces of music that I encountered that was just seemed so personal that it was something that I, that it wasn't just like, I don't know. It just, it struck me as very personal and a lot of the stuff that they did. And then with um, George, like things like my sweet Lord and um, you know, things that he would just, when mostly a lot of it, when he would talk about it, you would read or watch interviews with him. He was always just talking about, well, you know, that, there's some purpose to everything. There's some pattern to everything. There's something going on. And part of that appealed to me because I've always been, I feel like a very curious person and wanted to know how things worked. And I always viewed that as like science mostly. And I started looking as well. It's not just that there's so much more to the world than just biology and, you know, and it kind of just opened my mind up to looking in different places for meaning in my life. Hmm. Yeah. And, and what did you find or what, where did you, uh, where did that take you? Um, it was kind of an interesting journey because I started actually um, kind of, well, kind of looking a, around a little bit, I would kind of read about whatever I could. 
um, I started investigating Christianity because that's what my family nominally was Christian. And a lot of it didn't quite ring true for me, but I kept like looking closer and closer. And what I ended up doing was discovering underneath all of that Judaism. Mm. And I actually um, ended up about 20 years ago converting to Judaism. Um, along with that, I discovered a, a strong affinity for Buddhism as well, um, which I, I know I've encountered some people that think that's a little odd, but I find the different, some of those different ways of looking at life very compatible. And, you know, just kind of looking out there and uh, what I discovered too, almost on accident in the middle of that was um, some of the ancient Hellenistic philosophies like Stoicism and Cynicism, which I'd actually been introduced to in high school by my Latin teacher, but had sort of just been simmering there along. And then I just started realizing, wait a minute, this stuff, you know, I started looking into it more deeply and really saw how it was a very practical philosophy, much like I view Buddhism is, the Buddha was giving like practical instructions on, hey, yeah, life sucks. This is what you can do to maybe make it suck less, mm -hmm. um, which is probably not exactly the way he put it, but yeah. essentially, you know, and the, the, um, <laughs> well, that's actually the four thoughts in one phrase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and like, truths. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like the Socratic philosophers, those that followed Socrates, that's all Socrates was trying to do. He's trying to figure stuff out and go like, what's the bet? How do you live a good life? What is a good life? And how do you do that? And I feel like if you take things down to its basics, that's what I think most religions started out trying to, in their theologies, there's some core where it's like, we want to know how to live. How do we live right? And or a good life and also defining what a good life is and what living right is um and just to have some guidance and not necessarily to have like hard and fast rules like you have to do this or you don't have to do that but even just sort of general guidelines like what does that even look like because i feel like so many people either haven't thought about it very much or haven't thought about it in the right way but are looking for a way to live but they're not even sure how to phrase the question yeah. let alone find the answer to it there's also the idea of like there being neither good nor bad in and of themselves i think you put down your answers and how we choose to react to them is the key mm -hmm. so if we go a little bit into that and how that connects these traditions i think that's really the key there is our reaction and how we guide our reactions to our stimuli um to the world around us and um Tell us a little bit about like how the uh, Stoics, because uh, now Stoicism seems like it's becoming a little bit more in vogue than it was 10 years ago. More people are talking about it, I think, than, uh, than during the time that you perhaps you were investigating it, you know? Yeah, it, it has gained a lot of popularity lately, which I have mixed feelings on. With anything, when it gets popular, you're going to have people trying to basically commodify it and yeah. things happen. But 
when I started looking at it, like I said, I was introduced to it in high school. My Latin teacher introduced me to um, Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor who was also a Stoic philosopher. And he, we have a book of his called The Meditations, which really what it was was his, um, his journal, where probably every day he would write like what he was thinking about and his thought on the day which is a, a very stoic exercise to sort of examine what's going on in your life or in your mind and how you're responding to it. Um, and kind of through that, I discovered, because unfortunately there aren't a lot of stoic texts that still exist, you know, 2000 or more years later. Um, but we have a lot of the works of Epictetus who was, didn't directly teach Marcus Aurelius, but he received Epictetus's, works from a teacher of his and Epictetus just what I quoted to you before was basically nothing is really essentially good or bad the things that happen to you aren't good or bad it's how you choose to react to them and at first it's one of those things that you hear and you go well that can't possibly be right there are some bad things that have happened to me mm. but he goes on to unpack that and it's like well yeah something happened to you and basically you have a choice to go oh, this, this is really horrible thing happened to me. Or you can go, okay, that happened. You know, d did I do anything to cause that? What, what was it really? I mean, what was it really that bad? And kind of pick it apart to its essential points where you can kind of look at it and go, well, this thing happened. And I can sit here and wallow in it. and Or I can just, you know, kind of move on. And looking at, it ties into um, the Stoic ideas of virtue because they felt that living the good life was living a virtuous life, which by their definition of virtue isn't necessarily what the way the word is used today, but just living, living according to your nature. Like they would say that a, a horse that ran fast and was, you know, good was living its hoarseness and you should live your humanness to the best of your ability. And, you know, they, they wrote out, you know, different ways of doing that, but kind of looking at something that happens to go, is this keeping me from being a good person? Is this stopping me from living a virtuous life? And generally the answer is no, there's really nothing that can stop you from doing that because you're the one that's controlling how you live your life. And to the extreme, they would even say that even if you were a slave or put in prison or, all manner of things happen to you. As long as you're still alive, you, it's still under your control to live, live a good life and be a good person, no matter what's going on. And Epictetus would point out that really people get upset about things because they try and control things that they can't control. And basically the, kind of the, the lesson is that the only thing you can really control is yourself and what you do and how you react to what other people do that other than that, you really don't have any control over it, which to some people being out of control is anxious. It makes you, gives you anxiety, mm. but he was like, but if you realize this and accept this, you'll be like, Oh, well, you know, I didn't, I don't have any control over what they're doing anyway. Let them do what they're going to do. And I'll just make sure I'm doing the right thing and making my life as good as I can. Yeah, yeah. It seems like um, it also connects to the idea that, um, you know, many people have this perception that 
when you pursue spiritual paths or any spiritual teachings that, you know, you become kind of, uh, what's the word, like uh, a chill, like, you know, like very chill with everything. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it seems that um, we have to be active in this world. And I'd be curious what your take on that is, is about, um, you know, when we think about the personal is political and truth to power, we're thinking about kind of being active in the community and being active in the world and, and basing our choices based on a grounded sense of, you know, mm-hmm. um, active participation in, in overcoming injustice and correcting the more perfect, uh, a more perfect um, world that we want to create. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what your uh, take on that is. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, especially when you get into like Buddhism and the Eastern religions. And I hear it as a criticism of Stoicism a lot is people get this impression, well, if you're just going, well, I don't have any control over that, it doesn't bother me, that you're being passive. And that's really missing the point is the idea is, is that if things happen that aren't right, it's not that you're just going to go, oh, well, it's that you're not going to let that bother you. That's not, you know, like that's, to put it kind of in the terms you were using, it's not going to harm your inner chill. Yeah. You can internally like okay but still go hey that's not right i should do something about that in fact talking about living according to human nature the stoics also said that humans are naturally social beings that's something that's obvious to anyone that's ever studied a human being we're naturally social we should work together and um you know the stoics were very active i mean a lot of them if you look at them um, well, Marcus Aurelius obviously was an emperor. Cato was a senator. Um, Seneca was very active in public life. I mean, a lot of in the Roman world, a lot of Stoics were senators and people that worked in the public. And it's not that you're saying, I'm not going to worry about anything and just chill out in the corner. It's like, I'm not going to let that bother me personally and upset me. But you see things that aren't right and that aren't virtuous, that aren't good. Yeah. You do what you can. The The key to that is if the things you try to do don't work, you don't get dragged down by it and go, Oh my God, it's just a failure. It's not worth doing. Now you go, okay, well, I did what I could. And once I did it, I didn't have any control over what happened after that. If it didn't work, I'll just try something else or I'll do that again. And the idea is you're doing things but not tying your self-worth to the outcome and that you know you can still go out there and try and make a positive change but realistically you know well you know what this might not work but if it doesn't i just get up and do it again because that's not changing who i am inside and that's not going to crush me because i did what i could do and i did the right thing and i'll continue doing that no matter what the outcome is yeah i think there's a thread there also of using adversity as a way of or obstacles as a way of learning and evolving and there's a there's a lot of thought in in buddhist teachings about people who mistreat you are actually your kindest teachers because you will learn more from that experience than you might from someone who is treating you well and sort of coddling you in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole thread of teaching in Buddhism about turning suffering and happiness into enlightenment and how to, and it very much aligns with what you just said, that 
when we freeze up and try to defend what our concept of ourselves, it impedes so many things. It impedes learning, it impedes our response. It traps us in a self-worth downward spiral. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if we take it on as objectively as possible, think about it, respond to it, take the action we can, as you say, know that uh, there are all sorts of factors that may not work out, but at least we did something, um, that, that that very much aligns with uh, a lot of the um, sort of Lojong teachings in Buddhism, which is about mm -hmm. uh, de de enhancing, developing and enhancing compassion and understanding yourself along the way. Absolutely. And I, I don't, I can't remember where the phrase comes from now. And I, unfortunately, I read so much, I can't always remember where stuff comes from. But I remember reading a phrase that the obstacle is the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, there might be um, uh, Chinese, the uh, uh, one of the Confucian teachers, but I got to check it as well. Yeah. And, uh, the, the, the principle very much with very uh, poems lies, yeah. within mm -hmm. Buddhism and a lot of spiritual uh, paths. Well, and one thing, too, that strikes me about what you were saying about other people being teachers is one thing, and I think it goes back to Socrates, would say that he didn't believe that anyone intentionally did evil, that people that do things that aren't right are just ignorant of what the right thing to do is, and that the job is to not, you know, get angry or recriminate, but just educate. The, the best thing to do is to educate people. And I feel like from my feelings of Buddhism, that kind of falls in into that idea of, you know, we just need to let everybody know what the right thing is. If, you know, you kind of, you need to teach people and you need to learn lessons from other people, even if it's what not to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, I just looked it up. It turns out Obstacles Away is from Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius. Mm. Although it does oh. sound a little bit like uh, yeah. I Ching or something like that. Or yeah. something, <laughs> something like uh, Taoist philosophy. But it's interesting to think about how there's so many um, overlapping ideas and uh, overlapping uh, concepts, that core concepts that, you know, um, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint where the, the phrase phraseology comes from. Yeah. Yeah, and I've definitely noticed a lot of overlap between like Buddhism and Stoicism, which you feel I felt like when I first was looking at them, like you couldn't get two things that were further apart. I mean, Buddhism is from India and Asia and Stoicism is from Greece and Italy. But I feel like part of it is that they were both looking at the same issues. Like, yeah, we're all people and we all have the same stuff going on and we both get anxious about what's going on in the world and kind of come to that realization sometimes, like I said earlier that, you know, basically the Buddha sat down and was like, wow, this really kind of sucks. What there's gotta be a way out of this. And how do I live a life and rise above all of this stuff and mm. be able to live a good productive life without being weighed down by all this, obviously stuff that's going on that isn't great and to rise above the suffering. Well, there was actually a lot of contact between India and the Greek world. Um, mm -hmm. Even after Alexander got as far as the Indus Valley, there was a Greek empire on the border of India for a couple centuries. So mm -hmm. um, there was, a, and Menander was a Greek king who was involved with a Buddhist monk in a very famous dialogue. So there's, uh, we never, 
know, going back that far, how much actually happened that has not survived textually in terms of contact, traveling merchants, traveling wise people and so forth. Um, yeah. It's, uh, I did a class uh, book group on uh, the Decameron this past summer and uh, everybody talked about the Decameron over the course of the pandemic. But the shocking thing to me was how mobile a certain class, granted, a certain class of Italians was moving all over the Mediterranean and collecting stories and bringing them back. And, and so certainly in the ancient world, that kind of mobility along the Silk Road and so forth is extremely viable to me as, a, as something that we just there probably was much more interaction at that philosophical level than we, we can now prove. Absolutely. And I feel like our lack of documentation from those eras is one of the things that I wish we had more of, because I feel like that was such an interesting time in so many areas, spiritually, intellectually, historically, that we just don't have enough evidence left. And it, to me, it's frustrating because I know a lot of those people did write things well i just over the weekend discovered um you know the gandhara region which uh is what's now parts of afghanistan pakistan sort of centered on peshawar um was a very active buddhist center in the early part of the uh, zeros 100s 200s a.d and um, some of the traditions i know about actually started in that area a little bit after that well, they're now finding and deciphering texts from that region. And um, they were written on birch bark scrolls, rolled up and folded into jars. And now there's a department at the University of Washington that has been working with various museums uh, deciphering those. And there's an early version of the uh, Heart Sutra, the mm -hmm. Prajnaparamita teachings in Gandharan had its own language slightly different from Sanskrit, its own alphabet. And that version from Gandhara seems to have been the one that informed the Chinese who were very much followers of that brand of Buddhism. It became, it eventually became Mahayana. And um, so there are discoveries of traces of these. And of course, Gandhara being a Hellenistic bordering land is where the, the tradition of sculpting a Buddha began. Until Gandhara, uh, there was never a physical representation of a Buddha. And the first Buddhas actually look a lot like Greek, uh, Greek gods or, or conventional Greek sculptures. So um, there are some evolving findings that are, are fascinating to see how areas like that, which are now have not been Buddhist for a thousand years, contributed enormously to, uh, to the growth in, in different regions throughout the world. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that, but I feel like watching the evolution of Buddhism over time, I mean, it's been around for so long. It's such an interesting story to follow <clears throat> and how it adopted and adapted in different areas is just completely fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So also going back to poetry, there's a lot of um, uh, Buddhist inspired poetry and Buddhist linking poetry um, and also all the different influences. Why don't we hear a little bit from your book to hear a little bit from uh, maybe select a poem that kind of exemplifies some of the, the thoughts we were thinking of. Uh, sure. Yeah. 
It'll take a moment to, while we take a moment to do that. I'll just remind people this is the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and we have co-host Bruce Whitaker. And we're here with John W. Lays. We're talk- discussing some poetry and discussing creative process. Yeah. So let me know. Give me a signal when you... Uh, okay, I'm ready. Okay, good, good. Yeah. yeah, I have one from the book. It's called um, The Dowel of Logos. Um, the logos that can be defined is not the one internal logos. The word that can be spoken is not the one true word. The Tao that can be explained is not the one everlasting Tao. The force that can be described is not the one indivisible force. The path that can be walked is not the one true path. Known without learning understood without knowing, arrived without traveling. One unified whole, no sides to join, no inside to be on the outside of. All is one, one is all, forever momentary, all pervasive, binding itself to itself. Source of everything, bookend of eternity, rational structure of existence, unobtainable goal that has already been reached. Mm. Thank you, thank you. Very, uh, very good. And I think it's interesting how that was called the Tao of Logos. 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 Yes. Cool. Yeah. That was very appropriate. What we were just talking about the mix of Eastern, Western, and uh, Stoicism, and uh, the negations. You know, the, the the teaching through negation, which is mm-hmm. uh, a very, uh, very Buddhist method. Well, in that, I actually started writing that I was on a plane and I brought a copy of the the Tao with me just for something to read. And I was reading through it and just started seeing connections in my head. And it was one of those things that I, I don't think I planned on anything. It just, I started writing and it just sort of came out that way. Yeah, it was interesting. In the book, too, you put it in the, um, you put lo- Tao and Logos in the Greek and uh, uh, I guess... Chinese uh, characters. So yes. It's interesting how you did that. Uh, so it gives people a little bit like, otherwise I think um, they, they can learn a little bit something about the original languages and, and, and explore a little bit more uh, on mm-hmm. their own. Yeah. That's interesting. And you have, um, and returning to uh, the Western influences, um, the immediate, more immediate, more recent influences, you have some poems with we were talking we were discussing earlier on about Allen Ginsberg, and mm-hmm. uh, you had Howl as one of the major works that uh, you felt people should should read or 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 have exposure to. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and how uh, tell us a little bit about your impressions mm-hmm. from Howl and how that maybe exemplifies a lot of uh, what we were discussing as well. Well, I feel like. <clears throat> With Allen Ginsberg, one, I think he is such a quintessential American voice. Um, the same way that I would say Whitman and even Dylan, to some extent, are just very specifically American voices and American writers. But Ginsberg, in general, but how specifically, I feel like it's such a genuine, authentic piece of writing that he's not writing that for anybody. Like, that's just Alan being Alan on the page. He's just, and I feel like the way he uses the language 
if you, especially if you read it out loud or if you've heard a recording of him read it out loud, the beat that he uses, and it's not a set meter by any means, but the, the words and the syllables that he uses kind of drives it forward and you feel this kind of this um, drive to it that almost makes you want to read it quickly because it just keeps coming at you. And I feel like looking at this, at, especially as long as it is and as dense as it can be, he wasn't going, oh, I'm what what do people want to read? I'll, I'll write that. He was like just sitting down going, no, this is what I am and this is what's coming out. And I mean, very obviously with the whole obscenity trial, a lot of people didn't care for it in particular, but that was to me the biggest thing I've taken away from Allen Ginsberg is just that sense of authenticity to just be yourself, um, which actually I feel like is almost like a one of those um, Buddhist sayings that you might hear that sounds so simple, but there's a lot to unpack in how do I just be myself? What does that mean? And one of his quotes that I love is he said, to gain your own voice, forget about having it heard. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, I took that to mean like, because you hear so much from people teaching writing classes, oh, you need to write to your audience. Who's your audience? Who are you writing to? And I mean, there's some value to that, but I feel especially for someone who's like a poet, for instance, people don't know what they want to hear until they hear it. Yeah. And yeah. if you're writing to an audience, that's that's a marketing ploy. That's not an artistic venue. Um, and that was part of what I did when I started my blog is I was just like, you know, I'm going to write this stuff. I'm going to post it. If people read it, they read it. If they like it, they like it. And there was some stuff, honestly, that I wrote that I was shocked that other people engaged with it. Cause I was like, well, I know I, I wrote this for myself and I kind of like it, but there's no way anybody's going to want to read this. <laughs> and those sometimes ended up being the most popular pieces. Can we go back to Ginsburg a second? Because the, yeah. to me, he's kind of perplexing because Howell of course is his masterpiece and his personality, his persona, his public intellectual role, his public spiritual role, became very, very prominent, but not so much his poetics after Howell. And I wonder if you could point us to other Ginsburg works or other things he he did after that that you find as a poet were interesting. Um, because you don't hear anyone, I, I, I write a lot of poetry myself, and I never hear anyone talk about Ginsburg has an influence necessarily. They're all much more about um, uh, other poets in any case. Mm-hmm. And, and he's kind of outside of a school. What, what is the, what do you take from Ginsburg besides the, the howl, uh, the howl of it? <laughs> um, well, I would say the other major one that I usually think of is um, Kaddish, mm. which he wrote for his mother after she passed away. Um, you know, it's hard for me to think of anything, but honestly, a couple of years ago, I read through his complete works, cover to cover and i mean as with anything you'll have your ups and downs but i think it's a shame actually that people just know how because he wrote for like 30 years after that mm-hmm. that was actually so very early in his career and i feel like there's so much to be had there um up until like the end there was a fairly recently a couple posthumous books of his published 
and I would honestly say any of those are worthwhile um, reading. Um, there was one, oh, I trying to, it was one of his books in the eighties. It was, um, oh, now I'm blanking on it, but it was, it was called improvisation in somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but it was basically wherever he wrote it. Um, and it was his, it was this poem about, he basically listed off. I write poetry because I'm a poet because and all these reasons. And it was, it wasn't going anywhere. It was just, you could tell it was probably just him sitting in a hotel room writing stuff down kind of like the way I feel Hal came out that he just kind of wrote what he was feeling at the time and there's a lot of contradictions and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't quite make sense but I feel like that's so human that we're full of contradictions I mean like Whitman said I contain multitudes Mm -hmm. and I think that's you know one of the great things about in, well, I think Ginsburg really showed that, but I think that's something that I, is hard for people to embrace and go, well, yeah, sometime, sometimes I'm, you know, really nice and engaging, and sometimes I want to crawl in a hole and be by myself. That's okay. You know, people can contain opposites within one person, you know, that it's, you know, no one is really clean cut. No one is, no one is simple. Mm. Yeah, and also um, one thing I thought was interesting in one of your answers was about beliefs or practices is that you have the stranger and popular within your industry, and you had a little bit of a uh, talk a little bit on confessional poetry and the idea that poetry should always be connected to uh, the general concept or the general consensus that poetry should always be connected to something in your life or it's mm-hmm. specifically a memory or something like that. What is your take on that, or what is your uh, revisionist take on that? Well, my feeling, I feel like it's the view on confessional poetry has gone back and forth. Personally, I like confessional poetry. I write some of it myself, but I feel like there's so much more to be had in the world of poetry than that. Yeah. Um, because, and honestly, I think people have a limited view of what personal is. Because mm. if someone read that poem I just read, about the Tao of Logos, they would go, oh, well, that's that's like a philosophical, religious thing. Well, that's a very personal piece to me, though. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't talking about something I did or how I felt, but that's a very personal piece to me. And you wouldn't look at Paradise Lost and say, oh, that that's a very personal piece. But it, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it was very personal to Milton. Mm-hmm. You know, that was coming from his inner being. But it's an epic poem. And I'm sorry, I wouldn't trade Paradise Lost for anything. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's so much more that can be done with poetry that it can reflect. Yeah, it can reflect what's going on in your life. It can be a diary. It can be, you know, a confessional. It can be somewhere to put your philosophy. It can be somewhere to think about things. It can be some. It doesn't even have to be somewhere to answer questions. It can just be somewhere to ask questions. You can tell stories with it. I mean, the earliest poetry that we have is lyric narrative epics. And again, those are incredible. I don't think anyone would argue that they're not great poetry, but they're also definitely not confessional poetry. I feel like I feel like there's always someone trying to limit it. Like, yeah. to me, poetry is just such a big, open venue 
that you can do anything with. And you always have someone going, oh, no, poetry can't rhyme or poetry has to rhyme or it has to be about this or it can't be about that. And I just, I'm just like, no, it can be whatever you want it to be. I mean, it's just, that's why I love it is because you can use it to say anything. Yeah. And also in regards to what you hope your the readers will gain from uh, reading this book, the, the darkness of his dreams is available mm-hmm. on all these different sites. So what do you hope that the uh, reader will get from this book? The takeaway? Um, you know, I would say baseline. If someone reads it and is just entertained for an hour while they're reading it. That's great for me. Um more than that i would like my dream would be for people to get out of what i've written what i've gotten out of other writers is an essential one reading things that make you think about stuff there have been plenty of authors poets or not that maybe don't have any answers but raise a lot of interesting questions and sometimes in some of the things i've written i i would hope that someone even if one person somewhere goes wow that's how I feel because I feel like sometimes you can get that from a a poem or a song or a book, just that feeling of I'm not the only one who feels that way. And uh, in that way, you know, it can be kind of a long distance, just reassurance of I'm not giving you any answers, but Hey, I'm kind of screwed up too, or I had a bad day too, or that really sucks, you know, that that happened. And I feel like that's a comfort that I've gotten from a lot of literature and especially poetry to just kind of go, wow, I may be screwed up, but that guy screwed up just the same way I am. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why don't we hear one more poem from the collections just to give people a better sense sure. of the collection as a whole before we uh, continue. This is one that's called Still on the Road. Driving down the poison highway through the nightmares of my youth, saccharine poetry, suicidal thoughts, disastrous experiments with vermouth, sterilizing self-inflicted wounds with tequila, scotch, and beer, bathed in sticky sweat, self-loathing and fear. Decades down a dusty highway through the terrors of middle age, Sitting hair, graying beard, covering the still smoldering rage. Calming the demons of the mind with a single chilled glass of mead. Wounds healed, scars run deep, and occasionally still bleed. Seeking release from suffering in Athens under an old fig tree. A chance to finally flourish, living life in true equanimity. Thank you, thank you. Very good. I think it's like interesting how we think about our personal struggles in regards to more larger themes and how um, what I got out of that was basically like, you know, people think of the private struggles, but these are actually really universal struggles that we're kind of Mm -hmm. connecting to our ideas and ideals uh, and how we kind of push through them to ultimately reach that that goal of of whatever you want to call enlightenment or or kind of more higher understanding yeah well I, I feel like life is life is a journey and i mean that almost sounds cliche but it's 
It's so true. And I feel like that's something that I don't know that you can totally understand when you're in your twenties, because I feel like when for myself nearing 50, which I hate to think about, I kind of look and go, you know, there was a bunch of that stuff that seemed so important at the time. And it just, it, it was kind of a little bump in the road. And I think perspective can change a lot. And yeah, it's moving through things and it is universal. I mean, it totally is. And in that one, I would have to say too, I ended up going back to the Buddha in, in Athens and I didn't intend on doing that when I started writing it. It just sort of ended up there um, that I and it's one of those things, too, that sometimes people say, oh, it, you crafted that so well. And it's like, I wish I could say I did it on purpose. Yeah. It just sort of happened that way. Yeah, you quoted uh, Dhammapada. Why don't we go back to that quote? Uh, by oneself is evil done. By oneself is one defiled. By oneself evil avoided. By oneself one purified. Purity and purity depends on oneself. No one can purify another. Tell us a little bit more about what the meaning of that uh means to you or how you how you interpret that phrase well to me it always and that's always one verse it's always struck me because i feel like it's talking about one not blaming anybody else but yourself if stuff happens like go okay you know there's no sense in blaming anybody else if i've done evil i did it no one made me do that but on the other hand, if I do good, I did that too. Um, and it talks about self-reliance in that no one can purify another, which it can be intimidating to a little bit, but I feel like it's empowering to know, hey, I can do this. I'm the only one I need to rely on that I can, you know, to, to get back to what I was saying before, be a vir to be a virtuous person and live a good life, that's up to me. And kind of teaching that, because I think there's too many, especially in a lot of religions, this idea that someone's going to come and save you. That, you know, there's going to be someone else that'll come and make everything okay. And, well, all the bad things are your fault, but anything good, you know, that's outside. Yeah. And I feel like it's very empowering, that idea of, no, yeah, the bad stuff is my fault, but I also have the power to fix that. I have the power to make myself a better person. Mm. Yeah. Well, the other side is yeah. that a lot of religions are driven on it. It's my job to save you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yes. And I was very moved. You put in your blog, you mentioned uh, uh, a teacher you had who would survive the Holocaust and you were talking to them about to this person about human beings and the faith in human beings or trust you know what what could happen with human beings and after all this he said people don't change mm -hmm. and um i find uh you know this is the source of enormous frustration to me that uh, people don't do what i tell them to do <laughs> or, what I, <laughs> or what I wish they would do. And this plays out on, on both the private sphere and, of course, the public sphere. Um, and uh, the, the, personally speaking, my, my biggest challenge with handling these times and, uh, and actual uh, negative emotions like anger and attachment 
is this sort of self-righteous on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet how you balance that with being proactive and being active as a white ally or, uh, you know, on facing injustice and economic injustice, political, cultural injustice. It's a, it's a really uh, juicy kind of spider's web, you know, of um, keeping your equanimity and understanding your expectations, but yet activism as well. And it's, it's a very challenging moment uh, for a lot of people, I think. When I feel, I feel like too, that a lot of people, yeah, they get into the activism and they want to be an ally, but they still make it about themselves. Mm. And mm. I feel like, I mean, if it is if it is something about the group that you're in, that's fine. You're the one that's to speak about that. But if you want to be an ally to someone, you need to stop and listen to them and actually don't just assume things because I've learned so much from people that I've known in different groups and in different categories that I have no knowledge of and I probably never could, the best thing I've ever done is just listen and be like, hey, what do you need? What what can I do? And then actually listen to what they say and, you know, go with that. And I mean, it it's not even on a, a large scale, but even on a personal scale, sometimes I think that's hard to like, if you have a friend that's having problems, just go, hey, what can I do? Is everything okay? And then actually listen to what they say after that. Because a lot of people say that, but they don't actually listen to what the person wants or actually make it clear that they just want to listen to you and to be able for that person or that group to just say, hey, this is what I need. And this is what you can do to help me. And not, and yeah, not make it about you. I mean, we can go back to, you know, extinguishing the ego, but I think there's a lot to extinguish there with a lot of people that they just make everything about themselves. And it's like, that's not helpful to anybody. Yeah, this has been a, a real frustration for blacks uh, as whites try to, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, the, the intentions are, are often not that well informed and, and uh, not, not that skillful. So yeah. it's a very, very relevant point. Thank well, and what I see sometimes, too, is people will have good intentions and then maybe not be well informed. And then someone from that group says, hey, that's not actually how I feel. And then they'll argue with them about it. And it's like that you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. The internet is full of people who like to argue and like to, you know, kind of debate these topics, but they're usually coming from an egocentric perspective as we're, as we're mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. But I was uh, wondering, I've been so curious about your, uh, you play the ukulele. Yeah. And uh, how did you get into that and why? (laughs) Well, actually it, it's another thing that goes back to the Beatles because and m- maybe a lot of people don't know this, but George Harrison was a fanatic for the ukulele. Um, he would take them wherever he went. He played them all the time. He used to say that you can't be unhappy and be playing a ukulele. <laughs> and I think Tom Petty tells a story about how one day over the course of a week, George was staying with him and bought him like five ukuleles. He was like, <laughs> George, I don't think I need five ukuleles. He goes, well, yeah, you do. Because what if the guys come over? Everyone wants something to play. You'll have enough for everybody. <laughs> and that kind of a, just that appealed to me. And my parents were actually vacationing in Hawaii one year and bought me one. 
like a little cheap ukulele. And I just, when I was in grad school, I actually just started teaching myself to play. And that was about five ukuleles ago. <laughs> <laughs> is there a uh, ukulele uh, top 40? Are there, uh, I, there's a very famous version of Over the Rainbow um, sung by, I forget his name, a very great and unfortunately past Hawaiian uh, singer. Um, and ukulele is such a powerful part of that rendition. Um, yeah, that that's beautiful. And I'm not going to attempt. I know I know who it is. He goes by is and I cannot pronounce his last name to save my life. Mm. But yeah, just fantastic. I would also say um, Jake Shimon Bakuru, who is also Hawaiian. He plays a lot of instrumental. A lot mm. of people might have seen years ago. He did a instrumental ukulele version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps that was on YouTube. He is just phenomenal. He is, um, I've heard him called the Jimi Hendrix of the ukulele. Um, but just he, and you'll sit there and watch him play. And it's like, I, I know I own the same instruments he does, but I'm not sure exactly what he's doing. Mm. So we'll have um, to definitely check that out. So just wanted to announce this is the Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. If you're listening to The Truth to Passion on Radio Free Brooklyn or by your computer, you can free yourself up by listening to through the mobile apps on iPhone or on Android. Go to the Play Stores and the respective Play Stores for each uh, device, you know, Google Play Store or the Apple Play Store, and just search for Radio Free Brooklyn. It's a free app, and you can listen on your phone. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the new, latest news and new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at radioforbrooklyn.org newsletter. Um, you know, if you'd like to give, you'd like to donate a little bit to keep us on the air, go to radioforbrooklyn.org donate. There you'll find some great mugs, t-shirts, um, and other swag that we'd like to send to you as thanks. You can also text RFB Give 5 to 44321. Um, it only takes a minute and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for the donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you go to amazon.com slash smile and uh, register Ready for Brooklyn as a nonprofit you wish to support. When you do your percentage of your sales, will go to RFB and cost you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts and we wish you all our listeners health and happiness as we weather the COVID storm together. Thank you. Um, so now bringing it back to, um, a little bit of your questions, it was interesting to me to hear, listen to you talk a little bit about some of the biblical stories in relation to, um, uh, some of the things we've been thinking about truth to power. Um, you know, one of the stories you told about, uh, Sam Gamora, uh, your take on that, if you could end with that and then how we can kind of like revisit some of these stories and look for those, look for those gems within them. So I think you mentioned about speaking truth to power in this, in this, in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like that story always, always pokes out to me. And I, the thing that also, when I converted to Judaism, I found out that Israel means wrestling with God. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of Jews arguing with someone is a high form of respect. But the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is basically, you know, God goes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to go down the road to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to flatten them. They're all horrible. And 
instead of just, I mean, you, you have God standing before you saying he's going to do something. I think it would be totally understandable to just go, oh, yeah, whatever you want to do. But Abraham goes, well, wait a minute. What about the good people? And there can't be all bad people. And he basically barters with God. Well, what if there are a hundred good people? Would you wipe them out then? Well, no, not if, well, what if they're 50? What, you know, and I get down to, I believe it's 10. And then, you know, God says, okay, if, if I can find 10 good people, I won't wipe them out. And goes on his way. And of, of course, he, he can't find 10 good people in Sodom and it ends up getting destroyed. But I think that's beside the point of that Abraham was like, okay, this is God, but I don't think he's doing the right thing. I need to say something on behalf of those possible innocent people that are going to get killed. And the quote that always resonated with me is he said something along the lines of should not the, the judge of the whole earth act justly mm. that, you know, you're supposed to be the, the, the ultimate judge. Shouldn't you be acting justly? And I think the takeaway from that is that it's easy to be intimidated by, Oh, well, you know, it's the government. What I, what can I do? Or it's my boss. What can I do? Well, if it's not right, you should speak up against it or to it and say, hey, that's not right. And yeah, maybe it won't work. But that goes along with what I said about stoicism. Sometimes you have to go, well, I need to do the right thing, even if it might not work. Well, if you don't do it, it's definitely not going to work. Yeah, And you owe it not just to yourself, but like Abraham it wasn't going to hurt him. He didn't live in Sodom. God could go wipe out that city and it wouldn't affect him at all. But he was like, no, there are innocent people there that are going to be killed. It's my duty as a human being to say, hey, that's not right. I mean, that's my takeaway from it. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't I give you a chance also to tell us where, you can, where people can follow you and find your book and find out more information, tell us some of the websites, and then we'll start to wind down we saw him is over yeah sure um my blog is at um darkness of his dreams um i'm on twitter at um eliyahu 5733 um or you can just search for john lays um the book is available on amazon.com um i'm on facebook if you search for john w lays author um, I think that's everywhere. I, I have I have pages littered all over that I don't remember where they are. <laughs> and it's John L E Y E S, is that right? No, just L E Y S. L E Y S, yeah. John Lays. John W Lays, yeah. Yes. All right, cool, cool. Thanks so much, guys. And this is the Truth to Power show. We air every Monday at eight AM. We're broadcasting on Thursdays at nine AM. And you can find our archives at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Or you can just uh, go to radioforbooking.org and look under shows to see uh, current shows to see our. Mm -hmm.